Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Genetics Podcast for our first episode of 2021. We wanted to kick this year off with something a little different than our normal single guest long form interview with three short form interviews with different experts in genomics and precision medicine. And these short interviews focus first and foremost on on the person, what they do, and and what they're excited about. But we also ask them about some trends or important things to look for in 2021. Uh, I really hope you'll learn about a couple new and exciting things. I know that I definitely did. Uh, we covered phosphoproteomics. We covered the importance of diversity in genomics and precision medicine and how that's starting to change and what we can do to to do better. And we also talked about an emerging story around cancerous mutations or, or previously thought to be cancer-causing mutations that are found in, in healthy tissues and what this means for early detection of cancer in general. So thank you again for taking the time to listen to the podcast. And as always, if you have any feedback or specific guests you'd like to hear from, general topics you'd like to cover, you can message us at podcast at sinogenetics.com. Thanks again, and I hope you enjoy. I'm really excited to be here today with Jane Theaker, who's the CEO of Konomica Limited. Konomica is a platform for large-scale cell signaling profiling, um, and it has a number of different applications to precision medicine. So I'm really excited to, to be here with you, Jane. I wonder if you could just tell me a little bit about yourself, your background, and, uh, and Konomica. Oh, well, thank you very much for inviting me on, Patrick. Um, so um, I'm basically... I an expert I suppose you could say in companion diagnostics and how they're used to better target medicines to the right patients. So a bit about my background, I started in the NHS in clinical biochemistry as a, as a very lowly MLSO, uh, medical laboratory scientific officer um, and then I joined um, after about seven years um, in the NHS, I joined Zeneca Diagnostics and when I was there I invented a technology um, that I later had the privilege of, of seeing make a real difference to patients' lives. And that was in the form of some of the, the first companion diagnostics that were being rolled out in the sort of, uh, you know, 2020, around that sort of time, 2015. I then joined AstraZeneca in around 2000, uh, where I was looking at sort of next generation sequencing technologies, high throughput genotyping technologies, um, and whole genome amplification technologies. So I've always been a bit of a technology development geek, if you like. Um, I joined Kyogen in around 2009 when the company that I was working for, DXS, was that was spun out of the technology that I'd originally worked on at, um, at Zeneca Diagnostics. Um, and um, I started work um, basically developing that technology into companion diagnostics. And these were genomic technologies, so-called real-time PCR diagnostic tests, um, where I helped to develop uh, mutation tests for KRAS, EGFR and BRAF. Uh, and my team and, and colleagues at Kyogen and Manchester and Hilden, um, we, we developed and had these companion diagnostics approved by the FDA. So it was really sort of at the cutting edge of, of new genomic companion diagnostics. Wonderful. And, and we've talked a lot about genomics on this show. But one thing we don't talk about very much is cell signaling. So I'd, I'd love to hear more about what, what this means, what, how it's currently done today, and, and what you all do differently. Yeah, well, last year, I joined Canomica as, um, as CEO. 
And uh, just to tell you a bit about Kinomica, um, it was set up um, just last year, spun out of Queen Mary University London, and it's focused on looking at cell signalling, which is also called phosphoproteomics. Um, So the traditional way of figuring out what's going on with uh, complex networks of cell signalling in tumour samples, for example, is to look at one protein at a time and then painstakingly figure out what's going on in the network by adding up all the different experiments that you've done using techniques like ELISA and immunohistochemistry or Western blots. But our technology looks at over 10,000 proteins in one simple experiment and tells researchers um, exactly which proteins are activated and which ones are not activated. And this is incredibly important and very relevant to personalised medicine because we've got data that shows that you're um, able to predict which proteins are activated and that then perfectly correlates to which patients will respond to the drug. Um, So using this approach is much better than looking at just RNA and DNA in a tumour. And that's really because uh, drugs don't work at the level of the DNA or RNA. They work at the level of the proteins, uh, specifically the activated proteins. Amazing. No, that's a that's a perfect explanation. It's it's really the um, you're closer to the the business end, so to speak, of of what's happening, right? The DNA only is a is an early stage recipe, but you're you're actually measuring what's what's really going on. Yeah, I, I like to think of it like a little bit like the DNA is sort of barking out the orders, but what's actually going on with the foot soldiers on the ground is what the proteins are doing, and that's where the drugs have their effects on the proteins. So um, it's it's really quite revolution, revolutionary stuff. This because um, you know I've turned my back almost on. 25 years in DNA, as soon as I saw the data on phosphoproteomics or cell signaling, I thought this is just going to change the way that predictive medicine is done. Um, So that preclinical data that Kinomica had access to just showed that, you know, you could predict which patients were going to respond to a drug or not before they'd even taken the drug. Um, And it was highly, highly predictive and highly accurate. That's amazing, and and maybe this is a good segue into into your prediction or trend to watch for twenty twenty one. I'd I'd love to hear more about uh, what what you think we should all keep an eye on. Well, um, I'll just tell you a little story now. When I was at school in the eighties, my chemistry teacher, who was a young um, a young academic, um, told me go into DNA. It's going to be huge. And she was absolutely right. Well, I'm going to say, if you're a a young researcher thinking about where to go and and study, go into cell signaling, go into phosphoproteomics, because it's going to be huge. You know, this is really going to become very important in the way that drugs are developed. And especially when you combine it with the current genomic assays, using this sort of so-called multiomic approach. So you're using the DNA, the RNA, and the phosphoproteomics, the cell signaling, then that's going to create diagnostic which are going to be hugely accurate, very predictive of drug response, and that will lead to needle-shifting improvements in precision medicine and patient treatments. Amazing. Now, that's wonderful. Go on. Where were you um, going to add something else? <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say that if you use this approach, um, the sort of multiomic approach, especially if you're using you know, phosphoproteomics in addition to the DNA and the RNA, um, then that has um, really big implications for the way medicine's done. So, you know, the, the positive impact is that you're 
you're basically targeting those drugs to the right patients. Um, so you're not wasting money, therefore. So healthcare systems are going to save money because the, the drugs are going to be targeted at exactly the right patients. Um, and, and also it's, it's great for patients because they're not taking drugs that aren't efficacious. Um, and, and the other sort of benefit is the pharmaceutical companies, because they haven't got this huge attrition rate of drugs that are going through development and are targeted at the general population um, of, you know, cancer sufferers, for example, when really they should be targeted at specific patients with a particular cell signaling profile where those drugs are going to have some effect. So this is going to stop, um, it's going to stop their drugs from falling out of clinical trials. So it's going to sell, save uh, pharmaceutical companies from um, wasting money on, on clinical trials that don't prove anything at the end of the day. So everybody wins if you, if you take this approach. Absolutely. Is, um, it, I think you all are, are fairly focused for the time being on cancer. Is that, is that the area where it's going to have the most impact or, or can it also impact in, in other, other diseases, autoimmunity, neurology? And, and, um, yeah, I'll, I'll say COVID because it's, uh, it's a big one now. And I'm, I'm sure you all have been looking at that as well. Absolutely. So anywhere where you're interested in what the biology is doing. Um, so we've um, been looking at COVID, um, you know, specifically um, fibrosis, you know, the after effects of, of COVID, you know, how do you prevent the lungs being hugely damaged by this process? Is there a way that you can prevent that using existing drugs, but targeted at patients that are going to benefit from those drugs um, so we've been looking at the sort of cell signaling profiling uh, that's going on there as well. So, yes, so it's, it's applicable in COVID, it's applicable in respiratory diseases where you've got pulmonary fibrosis, um, like idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Um, we've also been looking in hepatic diseases, um, hepatic cancer, immune oncology. So anywhere where you're interested in the in the biology, what's going on there, mode of action um, of, of your drug or mode of action of the of the disease state. Wonderful. And where where do you think we're going to see the the big impact first? Is it in healthcare setting? Uh, is it in is it in clinical trials? Is it in early drug discovery or somewhere else? Yeah, so it's going to be a little bit like next generation sequences, sequencing because it's a platform technology and, and phosphoproteomics is a, um, you know, the approach can be applied just like next generation sequencing across the piece. So usually the way that things go within the drug companies is you start off in discovery. So that's where I'll see where you'll see. And, and that's exactly where we are seeing some big gains in the discovery area, figuring out the mode of action of drugs and identifying new targets. But that will migrate through the drug development and discovery process through, you know, more towards clinical trials and then towards the companion diagnostic end. So I see this um, technology naturally progressing through the pharmaceutical drug development pro uh, program, really. Yeah, that makes complete sense. So the, the is going to be a really big splash in the early stage drug discovery, and it may take a five years to to ripple through and really see the effects downstream but they're but rest assured they'll be happening yeah exactly and it's it's going to come i think with you know new technologies in the clinic as well so um in the same way that next generation sequencers suddenly got 
you know, kind of mainstream in, in routine um, healthcare settings or certainly most hospital um, diagnostic settings. Um, I think you're going to see the same with mass spectrometry. So I think there's going to be an explosion of benchtop platforms that allow you to do this um, multi, uh, multi-omic um phosphoproteomic analysis um, in an easy sort of plug and play way that you don't need a you know a PhD in physics to kind of drive the instrument um, so I think it's going to be you know really huge and certainly from what I've seen of the um, life sciences industry they're very much gearing up to this new future because they can see it coming. Absolutely well well I, I think it's a great prediction and, and vision I hadn't heard the term phosphoproteomics until today so if I were a uh fresh PhD student, undergraduate, or someone else thinking about what to go into, then, uh, then I'd, be, I'd be Googling and trying to understand right now. Um, so thank you, Jane. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here today with Dr. Philip Beer, who is an expert in all things precision oncology. Philip, welcome. And uh, love it if you would give us a quick overview of, of yourself and, and your background. Thank you. Thanks for the introduction. So I'm a physician scientist, essentially. I would consider myself a cancer biologist primarily. And at the moment, I have a a portfolio career working cross-sector in healthcare, in biotech, and also some involvement in academic research focused on drug development in oncology and particularly the use of biomarkers. And my main interest in biomarkers is the use of genomics, both to discover drugs to develop them and work out which patients are most likely to benefit from them. Excellent. It, it really is the promise of genomics. And so I, I come from a rare disease background. I think cancer and, and rare disease are the, the two areas, which, which of course they can overlap where genomics is having one of the biggest impacts. Um, I wonder if you could tell us what your prediction and or trend to watch for the next year is. So the trend I think that's going to become even more interesting next year is a story that people may already be aware of. So as a cancer person, then I understand cancer as being a disease of the genome. And we know there are recurrent changes in the genome that lead to events that drive cancer. And you probably need somewhere between five and 10 individual genomic events to drive a cancer. But in a story that's been brewing for a few years now, it's becoming apparent that actually all of our tissues are full of mutations. And many of these mutations are the self-same mutations that cause cancer. And this was initially described in the blood system some years back. And we really have this understanding now that, especially as we get older, our bloodstream is full of, of mutations, many of which are also seen in leukemia. But it's becoming apparent, really, that every normal tissue that is examined also has these mutations. And the blood system is quite easy to interrogate. We have lots of blood cells. You can get hold of them easily. You can do clonal analysis. So this system has been the best described. And improvements in technology, though, have enabled us to look at these kind of approaches in different tissues. So we're now aware that tissues like the skin, like the bladder, like the lining of the the gullet, the esophagus, these tissues are all full of mutations and they're all full of the kind of mutations that cause cancer. So why is this interesting? Well, it's interesting from a cancer perspective because it changes the way that we think about cancer and the way that we think about cancer treatment. 
So this isn't no longer cancer is no longer conceptualized as perhaps a random event, perhaps triggered by some external process. It's actually something that we're all living with. It almost becomes a wonder that we're not all getting cancer at a young age because these processes are going on. So one of the recent revolutions in cancer has been the understanding that the immune system is very active in hunting out and destroying cancer cells. And great progress has been made in drugs that actually ramp up the effects of the immune system. So this somatic aging mutation story, I think, really reinforces the great job that our immune systems are doing all the time at preventing these mutant cells getting out of control and turning into proper cancers. So I think it tells us that the immunotherapy angle in cancer is very important and is definitely the way we should be going. It reinforces that story. It, it also raises the possibility that there may be a set of diseases that are actually driven by somatic mutations that other than cancer. And cancer is the paradigm disease that's caused by acquired mutations. So could there be other diseases out there? Well, it seems likely that there might be. And that is something that perhaps will become more apparent during the course of next year and beyond, that this suggestion that there may be genetic diseases due to acquired mutations. Right. So is I, I would an example of that be neurological conditions like Alzheimer's? Or I, I feel like I've heard some early research in this area that there may be somatic mutations in the neurons in the brain, for example, that um, that so they're not in the germline where they're in every cell, but they're arising and, and you don't really know that they're there until you go in and sequence tens of thousands of, of neurons one by one. Is that what's the best example of the non non cancer? So th th it is, as you say, best described so far in the neurological system. I think that the non-cancer is as much a prediction as well, that we are going to find new stuff that, that where there are diseases that are non-cancerous caused by somatic mutations. There are also some rare disorders in the blood system, for example, where you can have non-cancerous mutations that cause blood manifestations. So so this this has been described, but there is as, as a kind of more left field prediction, just wondering whether this might be more common than we realize. And what we know in the in the drug development world is that if you have a very well defined target, then conditions are generally easier to treat. And in cancer, we've had great success with targeted therapies where we know there's a very specific mutation that's driving the cancer. It then becomes possible to target that in a specific way. But there are also examples outside of that in the cardiovascular system, uh, in many systems. And a lot of that comes from your own field, looking at inherited mutations associated with disease, identifying the targets and then looking to transfer those into people without inherited disease. So could there be a, a new realm that's opened here where if you can match a disease with a somatic mutation, it then points you in the direction of a target uh, and opens new doors for, for drug development? Yeah, on on this story about the the cancer mutations that are present in otherwise apparently healthy tissues, I remember at the start of my towards towards the beginning of my PhD, someone in I, I was doing my PhD in the lab of Matt Hurls at the Sanger Institute, and someone mentioned this eyelid paper. They kept calling it the eyelid paper, and um and and this is one of the earliest examples that I remember of of. Uh, someone at the Sanger Institute that was looking into sequencing lots of different cells in the eyelid and spotting this uh, apparently very strange uh, 
fact that the cancer mutations that were present in, in cancerous you know, skin cancers were abundant in otherwise healthy eyelid tissue. What What is it? And, and as you mentioned before, this has gone on and to be shown in a number of other tissues. What is it that has changed in the last decade that's enabled this phenomenon to be discovered where it wasn't it wasn't so apparent earlier, or maybe only apparent in in um in in blood, for example, that you referenced? Mm. So a key technological advancement that's facilitated this is the ability to get a lot of sequencing information using a small amount of input material. So the key thing with the sequencing of the eyelids is that you need to sequence very small, discrete areas because otherwise your your signal dilutes out. And the skin is a is a nice example because the the mutations cause these outgrowths of little patches of of tissue. And the same thing is seen in, in, in other tissues as well. You get these little patches of outgrowth. But you need to be able to pick these up and do a genomic analysis on them and a broad genomic analysis. Uh, with very small numbers of cells. Interesting. So it's a sort of convergence of micro dissection and and sequencing. Does single cell sequencing play into this at all, or is or is that not necessarily needed for for this kind of analysis? Not completely necessary. No, it, it's sort of small groups of cells. You could do it with single cell analysis. Yeah. The the other the other interesting door that it opens, especially if you can get lots of genomic information, a whole genome sequence is the possibility of molecular epidemiology and that's using the mutational profiles in the uh, that you see within the genetic damage to work out what's caused the genetic damage and in the skin is exposed to, is exposed to uv radiation and that's the cause of melanoma and and, and other kind of blood cancers uh, in the bladder some interesting signatures have been seen there are known carcinogens that that are pass through the body and cause damage in the urine. But there are probably things that we don't understand as well. And similarly with the esophagus in contact with cigarette smoke and food. So intersecting these kind of studies, what changes are we seeing in apparently normal tissue that give us clues to what's causing the genetic damage? And can these kind of experiments be intersected with more system approaches where you screen chemicals, for example, there's been interesting work done using worms where you, you screen chemical exposure to work out what the signature of genetic damage is. So there's that brings into this idea of molecular epidemiology that you can look at a cancer, look at the genetic damage and actually begin to understand what's caused it. Amazing. Yeah. And I guess that that leads on to a, a somewhat of a big news story in the last couple of months, which is uh, there's a number of companies that are doing this. But in the UK, uh, the, the NHS has announced some early partnership with Grail, which is the uh, Illumina spin out. But I, and I think then recently reacquired by Illumina that that does blood based testing for early cancer detection. And I guess in my understanding of it, one of the this, the promise of, of this technology is that you can you can detect cancer early, but you may also be able to determine the the tissue of origin of the cancer by by analyzing the data in the way that you described. If you can look at the shed tumor DNA that's in the that's in the blood, for example, you may be able to actually trace it back to the tissue of origin. Does does this emerging phenomenon affect the the potential of that technology in any ways? Because it, it seems like it might uh, introduce a little bit of a challenge if if we know that healthy cells have cancer causing mutations then then detecting that in the blood may may not be as straightforward as it seems in theory mm. 
it, it certainly makes it harder. I think initially there was an idea that if, if there were DNA molecules that harbored cancer-associated mutations, then that's likely to indicate that there's cancer somewhere. But of course, we know that that isn't true now. So it certainly raises the bar. But there has been some interesting research published around the use of methylation patterns. So you've got fairly short pieces of DNA, but if you can detect both a mutation and a specific DNA methylation pattern, then the combination of those two might give you a, a better accuracy and better idea that this has actually come from a cancer rather than a normal tissue. GRAIL, I think, is mainly focused on nucleic acids, but there's also been other work in intersecting uh, metabolites in the blood and other tumour markers. So going for a more kind of composite approach to increase your, your specificity. And with these kind of big population screening projects, it's the specificity that's really important because even a relatively small false positive rate is going to generate a lot of work for your for your downstream follow up, which is probably going to be some kind of scanning, some kind of biopsy. Uh, but also it's going to create a psychological impact as well on, on someone being told that they might have cancer and then having to undergo investigations. So it's a potentially interesting approach. But we don't really know yet whether it's going to work. And the key thing we need is a really big clinical study. So in that respect, the, the news that Grail are running such a study in the UK is welcome. And the kind of numbers that they're talking about are the kind of numbers that we would want to see to really understand not only whether this technology works, but how we're going to implement it in clinical practice, how we're going to deal with false positives, how we're going to screen the people who really have cancer from the ones that uh, the ones that don't. What is the scale of that study and, and who's it focused in? Because it seems like there's also a, there, there are better or worse initial populations to, to test this in in a clinical setting. Yeah, so the information I've seen is in the order of hundreds of thousands of patients, which which is, wow. I think, where you need to be. And a mixture of both completely unselected populations and high risk populations, which, again, is sensible. I think if you are going to run a study, then running a study in smokers, for example, that have a higher risk of a number of different types of cancer uh, is good. You're going to increase your power in that cohort because you'll get a, a more positive events. But ultimately, the, the ultimate question is, does it work in the population at large? And certainly Grail's initial target population was screening people over 50. So, again, age is, is, the, is the biggest single risk factor for cancer. So going with an older population. Great. That's fascinating. I, I guess that can't be uh, uh, that's not a great 2021 prediction because those kind of studies take uh, years, years and years to run because you need to wait years and years to see enough events for the most part. Right. Well, yes, it is a longer term prediction. In some ways, one of the most interesting things about it is, is, is it's going to address one of the fundamental cancer paradigms that we don't understand. So the whole early detection is based on the notion that a cancer starts as a localized growth and it grows as a localized growth and then it gets to a certain size and it spreads. So the paradigm is if you detect it earlier, then it will be localized and you can remove it by surgery. But we don't actually know that that's true. And it may be that the cancers that have spread at diagnosis had always spread, that in some ways they were born to be bad. And in some ways the cells were circulating around the body when the cancer was far too small to detect. So it's in all the textbooks, the idea that cancer goes in an orderly fashion through these through these stages. 
And I think it will be fascinating to see at scale whether that is indeed the case. And if the GRAIL study works out, if it's designed in a rigorous fashion, it will give us a pretty clear steer as to as to whether that is a true paradigm or not. Absolutely. Fascinating. Who, who else besides GRAIL is um, is is doing this kind of work and, and that we should be on the lookout for? Are they the furthest ahead by by a mile or are there other people in the race, too? There are other companies. I can't give you names off off the top of my head, but there are a few other companies that are in this space. A Grail have been phenomenally funded and they're up to a billion or so of, of funding and have the backing of Illumina. So have that kind of technological edge uh, and do appear to be further ahead. But they're certainly not the only players in the game. And you look at the kind of business model that Grail have been talking about, which is screening everybody over 50 probably every two years with a price point of around a thousand dollars. And you you look at that and you think most people are going to be able to afford $500 a year. And that's around the price or maybe even a bit less than a nice television. And if you really think that that's going to save you, people are going to stump up for that. But then you also look at how many people there are in, in the Western world and beyond who are over the age of 50 and you can see the kind of deal that this is. If this technology works, it's a massive market. And it's also potentially transformative as well. If the paradigm is right, that if we detect cancer earlier, then we're more likely to cure it, then there's a potentially big impact on health. Absolutely. Well, well thank you, Philip. I'm already a minute and a half over the, the magic 15-minute mark. So thank you so much. I, I really appreciate uh, all the insight you've given. That's great. And I know we're running up against time here. We're, we're recording this at, uh, are you, are you still in Cambridge? Cause it's uh, seven o'clock on Friday night. We're uh, in Cambridge and I'll be here for the foreseeable. <laughs> great. We're well, we're well into the weekend here. So I'm conscious of your time. Um, I, I we, we're recording a, a combo episode of a number of different people who are, are experts and, and visionaries in precision medicine and, and, uh, genomics. And so I wanted to ask if you have any predictions for 2021. This can be a, a trend to watch, a, a prediction about um, you know, something that you think will happen, uh, preferably something that, that we've not, we're not on all of our radars so we can, uh, we can learn something new. Specifically in the genomic space? It can be in genomics, precision medicine, wh- whatever you're interested in. We, we, we take a pretty wide uh, lens on this podcast. So I have been very fortunate that I have a platform to talk about diversity and inclusion. And I know I mentioned it briefly earlier on about that's something that's at the heart of what we do at StartCode on. But I think what hasn't been on people's radar is that diversity and inclusion is not just something that's morally right. It's actually good business sense, both in terms of your teams and how you build the teams, the investors who should be backing these companies in the first place, and also the founders that should be um, given an opportunity to shine. But what that also means is, there's a whole swath of the human population on the planet who have issues and needs, genetic diversity and opportunities that are not being addressed or commercially exploited to the extent that they could and should be. And I think the trend in 2021 off of the back of things like, you know, Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement and everything we've seen with the recent elections, shall we say, that people are going to be thinking more, hmm, I wonder if this is not just something I should do because it's morally right. I wonder if there's an opportunity here. I wonder what would happen if I knew more about the the reasons why people who are maybe black and brown suffer more from COVID. Or if I understood that, um, you know, Africa and uh, Southeast Asia and parts of Latin America are really on the rise and growing rapidly. And there are populations there where the medicines that we've developed and the stratification tools we've developed don't apply to them. 
I think the people have missed a trick. And those companies that suddenly realize that actually this is a massive opportunity for them are going to be the ones that thrive and survive for the next, say, 50 years. If they're still stuck on, I'm in my European or American bubble, I'm in my Western kind of focus, and all these little outliers we don't really care about because they're minorities, quote unquote, they should realize that they're actually global majorities and they should be considering them to be their next customers. I love that. One of the one of the things that I personally think about a lot and and struggle with how how it's going to play out is this issue of genetic prediction and the lack of non-European ancestry uh, data. And it results in this vicious cycle where all analyses exclude people of non-European ancestry. And then the algorithms only work on people that have white European ancestry, and then data is only collected in these people, and, and it's a, a vicious cycle. And I, I'm wondering if you, do, do you think, I'm, I'm trying to figure out where the leverage is here. And it seems like one, one way is if healthcare systems, for example, the NHS refuses to, to allow tests that do not work in, you know, in, in every uh, group of people in the country, and, and or if the FDA, for example, requires that minimum levels of of diversity are are met in trials and as far as i'm aware this isn't this isn't on the books anywhere it's something that people talk about but i fear i'm i'm interested if you have other ideas on examples like this where 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 does the buck stop and how how you know where where companies don't see that it's a commercial opportunity but instead it's a, you know it's it's potential for a, a vicious cycle how do we break that cycle so i think we have to it's, it's multiple layers, right? So we have to make sure that that inclusion is not just regulatory. There needs to be the commercial case for it as well. There need to be channels that if you're saying that you are going to be able to stratify patients of sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia or Latin America, so on and so forth, better than they are today to make sure that they get the right drug, then the drugs have to be affordable the stratification tests have to be affordable. The routes to market have to make sense and be clear. So all these things need to be happening at the same time. Then in the Western context, obviously the regulators have a huge part to play. And by mandating that clinical trials must include diversity, that a certain level of precision medicine and stratifying tests must accompany future um, therapeutics. But it's not just at the clinical trial stage. What's happening at the preclinical stage? Where are the samples and the models that are being used to develop these tests? Why is it that male animals are still widely used and female animals aren't included in some of the preclinical stages because they say, oh, the hormonal changes might confound their results? Well, guess what? When you get to the general population, <laughs> you know, women are over 51% of the population, so you better be accounting for uh, female, um, you know, um, differences early on. And even before that, in the cell lines that we're using for um, in vitro work, the vast majority of them, with the exception of HeLa, I won't even get into Henrietta Lacks, but the vast majority of them are from European Caucasian donors, particularly the cancer cell lines. So we should be expanding our pool of biobanked material that's available from a wide range of genders and ethnicities as well at the preclinical stage, so that when you're doing those drug screenings and coming up with new hypotheses, you're already starting from a diverse set of data before you even get to the point where you tell people you must have X percentage of different ethnicities and genders in your clinical trial. So it's got to go all the way through roots to market, regulatory, clinical trial design, as well as preclinical and even at the academic level. But you have to have access to the tools and the resources you need to meet that demand. Like we need to be engaging with um, 
you know, hospitals and, and biobanking systems and um, genetic databases from across the globe and making that data accessible so that together we can develop solutions that are more effective for everyone. So it's all of those things mixed together. Yeah, I'm 100% with you. And and you mentioned the uh, the Henrietta Lacks example. I, if anyone hasn't read the book, uh, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, I highly recommend it. it it's eye-opening in terms, and it's it wasn't that long ago in our history and and I won't I won't um I won't spoil the story but it, it it's eye opening in terms of the the data and tissue economy that we have and and the way that the most widely used cell line in the world was um extracted without consent and um you know that the family hasn't shared in any of the the financial upside from an enormous industry so yeah I, I think it's an incredibly important issue so thank you for for highlighting that well you know Patrick I'll just say real quickly Ironically, what I've heard is that the family hasn't benefited from the upside from the book either. Oh wow! I, I, that's I'm I'm sure that's probably right. That's uh, <laughs> that's what I've that's, heard allegedly. Um, yeah, well, well if, if that's the case, if the if the author wants to uh, wants to come on the podcast and discuss yeah. that, then, then she's really welcome. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, it's that is also an, it's an issue that's really you know the I think the financial value sharing is is an issue that's really important to me and i'm going to have someone on the podcast coming up uh, who's part of a really exciting um company called variant bio which is a new um genetic driven drug discovery company who's committed to share revenues from their eventual products back with the the participants that um whose data powers their their um their research so i'll, I'll uh, there's a I'll just do a quick unsolicited plug for them they work with a number of different communities around the world to to look at essentially groups of people that have interesting genetic variants. So, um, you know, there's a if we take a, a classic example, people who live in the Himalayas, many many of them have evolved over time genetic adaptations that allow them to live at higher altitude. There's something to be learned from natural genetic variation, and and in many cases, this can be applied to to drug discovery to help basically use the the experiments that nature has been running on us um in en masse and and use it to design better drugs and and they've uh established a model where they'll be sharing revenue back and and i think it's it's important you know even even if it doesn't amount to be an enormous amount of money i think it's it's important that it sets the precedent that uh you know everyone is aligned towards the same thing and and it's um you know it's it's a it's a recognition as much as it is a, you know, a, an, an actual thank you for your, your time and, and your data and all of that. So I think I, that's a, 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 something that I'm interested in continuing to follow up. And, and I think that sounds like you have some ideas on how we can, we can make this happen too. Definitely. And I think that revenue sharing model is so key because we cannot continue to exploit these vulnerable communities again and again and again. We did it with well, the colonial days, we did it when it came to prospecting for, um, you know, novel therapies from traditional medicine practices, uh, things like statins, um, aspirin, you name it. A lot of those came from indigenous communities that already knew which uh, plant and which herbal remedy would work. And we extracted it and built a whole pharmaceutical industry off of the back of bioprospecting. Um, so those communities should be benefiting. If you find another thermoaquaticus strain that leads to a tool that's used in every uh, PCR workflow, I'd like to think that the community where you found that um, thermophile or the next CRISPR that's lurking about somewhere in, in, in the savannah or the jungle somewhere is going to go back some benefits to the community that's there as well. And I, I like that model. And it's a virtuous circle because you 
bring the revenue back to the community, their standard of living increases. And guess what? They're going to be the customers of the future who can finally afford the therapeutics and diagnostics that you're developing. So it is a virtuous circle. It's not an in some um, game. Yeah, man. And I think it builds trust as well. What one of the, I think there's a statistic, the UK biobank, when they were recruiting their half a million participants, only about 5% of people contacted to join ultimately opted in. So they, they had to contact 10 million, 10, yeah, 10 million people to get half a million. And this is not to say, you know, this is a, this is just that people need to be motivated to participate in research. They need to trust it. They need, you know, they need to not be afraid. They need to feel like they're getting something out of it. And so if, if we, as a, as a community want to continue to do large scale research projects, we have to earn that trust um, and not not take it for granted. I think things like this do if they're if they're followed through on build that trust. Hundred percent. Well, thank you, Jason. Is there is there anything else that you'd like to shout out if um, if people want to check out your your website at startcodon.co? Are you on on Twitter or any other social media? I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter now. I was never on Twitter before, but I set up an account so you can find me. I think I'm the only Jason Mellet. I think. Um, so check me out on Twitter. Please do come to startcodon.co. I say get in touch with us early and, you know, it's never too late to get started. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Genetics Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, we'd really appreciate if you left us a review on your favorite podcast player, or even better, you can tell a friend who you think might like it too. As always, you can reach us anytime at podcast at sonogenetics.com. We really love to hear from you all about any feedback you have, guests you'd like to hear from, or topics that you'd like to see us cover in the future. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time.